Welcome to MedHeads, the weekly show that brings a biopsychosocial focus to issues of the day, along with special guests who will showcase their expertise and enthusiasm about their field of practice. Your host, Dr. Fergal Armstrong. Hello everyone, my name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong and welcome to MedHeads. And today we're very lucky to have with us Dr. Andrew Reese. Hello Andrew, how are you? I'm very well, thanks Fergal. Good. So, Andrew, this is the first time that you've done a MedHead show. I just want everyone to realize just how talented you are. So can you give us a bit of a rundown of what your expertises are? And I say expertises rather than expertise. Well, I, I don't know that I claim myself to be very much of an expert in much. Um, I have an interest in some of the aspects of uh mental health, particularly the kind of psychosocial uh, help that people need when they're perhaps dealing with chronic pain or with uh, uh, alcohol, other drugs, those sorts of things. Yeah. So we've actually worked together quite extensively on a project that, that, uh, that deals with the educational needs of other doctors. And in particular, you've made this contribution to that project in terms of your expertise with the psychosocial uh, interventions that, that can be applied to patient care, especially in cohorts, as, as you say, such as um, addiction medicine and also in chronic pain. Isn't that right? Yeah. So uh, yeah. I find it to, to be very useful in those areas. So how did you start into this, uh, into this journey, really? Well, um, I have this curiosity uh, in me. And uh, I realized that I didn't know very much about any of this. I didn't really understand very much about alcohol and other drugs. Uh, and uh, I suppose I had a fairly uh, perhaps even rigid view of the world about the whole idea that if somebody had a problem, you'd treat them with a the medication and then they'd either get better or they didn't. Um, and uh, I, I, I know yeah, that it, I had that view too. Yeah, I know that from my training, um, I had uh, been taught that the importance of the the psycho and the social uh, elements of helping your patients, and certainly uh, being a nice doctor is something that you try to do. Um, but uh, yeah, I didn't really understand very much about this, and so I uh, enrolled to do uh, the. Uh, opiate replacement therapy prescriber's course. And then I started to dig a little bit deeper and I became um, a, a member of our, our little uh, group that, we, that gets together and I started to learn more and more. And then I went digging for things like, well, how might, for example, acceptance and commitment therapy help somebody in chronic pain? Um, and then that led to uh, other things coming out of the woodwork, um, like how do you help people whose underlying problem is unresolved trauma? How do you help people who just don't seem to be able to find their way out of the woods? Those kinds yeah. of things. Yeah. I mean, what you've said really resonates with me because, I mean, I can remember when I was going through my training, I mean, you know, especially when statins came on board for the first time, and, and I think one of the first landmark style, one, one of the first landmark trials was the Wascops study. And effectively, we were all told you can keep, you can basically start statins and keep eating the cream buns, 
And, you know, nothing could be further from the truth. And it's only really recently that I personally have become uh, more informed and, and therefore I think more passionate about the role that non-medication interventions play in ameliorating suffering and optimizing health, uh, not only for my patients, but also for me. I mean, you know, the, the, the principles of lifestyle medicine I now apply to my own life. So, yeah, I can I can understand when you say that it was all about the pills when, when we were both training. And now, as you say, it's, it's, it's different. So in terms of your experience of people's suffering, what, what kind of suffering do you see? Well, certainly I've, I've recent times met a great, quite a number of people, maybe not a great many, but a number of people who've had decades of chronic pain um, treated with uh, high-dose opiates um, uh, and uh, also people who have been uh, struggling with alcohol and other drugs. Um, so, so, so would it be fair to say then that your main interest in this arena is about, you know, prescription opioids and drugs and alcohol? Uh, that benzodiazepines, uh, and it also extends, I suppose, just to the, it's not so much what whatever substance they're on, but whatever they're doing isn't working and uh, how might we best address their suffering. There's a lot of uh, just plain, ordinary, but often awful uh, problems with things like anxiety and depression that, that are not marked by any uh, actual bodily pain uh, that, yeah. that I also yeah. help people with. Mm. I, and I think, you know, in, in when I think about lifestyle interventions, um, I have now realized the importance of joy, the importance of purposeful activities and meaningful connections with other people. And, I, and certainly when, when I think about my former self, if I'd said that to my former self, I would have laughed at, my, at myself. You know, that, that's when you're a junior doctor in training and you're trying to learn the 10 causes of finger clubbing or the, the 15 contraindications to subtle all. The idea that joy, meaningful connection, and purposeful activity can help people with ischemic heart disease, for instance, was just lunacy. But I think it's becoming more and more apparent that these kind of issues play a significant role in, 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 in the maintenance of optimal health. What's been your experience of, of these issues, and how do you incorporate these things into your practice? Well, certainly, I, I think hope is probably one of the cornerstones. Hope and connection are, yeah. are so important. Now, when I say connection, I do include, obviously, the connection with other people, but I also include connection with purposeful activity, connection with the, the environment, uh, getting people to get outdoors, uh, you know, be not essentially one with nature, but at least go for a walk in the street, walk in the park those kinds of things, get a bit of uh, ordinary sunlight on themselves. Um, uh, connection with uh, things like uh, a, a good diet is, I think, incredibly useful. Um, you know, you spoke about statins and uh, certainly if we can get people to have a diet rich in, in vegetables um, and uh, exercise daily, avoid smoking, moderate or abstain from alcohol, we've pretty got pretty well done ourselves out of a job. 
<laughs> well, I don't think we can say that. <laughs> yeah. Maybe the, maybe we can do the cardiologist side of a job if, if everyone stops smoking, does some exercise, and eats a low-fat, whole foods, non-processed diet. But the, the, you, you've, you've said two words to me that, that really chime. One of them is connection, and the other one is meaningful, meaningful activity. Now, I mean, connection for me reminds me about the Johan Hariri book. Now, Johan Hariri wrote a very famous book called Chasing the Screen, which is all about his, his analysis and understanding of the world of addiction. But he also wrote a book called Lost Connections, wherein he described the causes or the, the root causes of depression. And he identified two biological causes, which we won't go into. But then he started identifying other causes, which were all disconnections. So he, for instance, he said that disconnection from one's social group and one's work was a, was, was a cause of depression. Disconnection from one's past, and by that he, would, he was referring to you know, the, being a victim of trauma in one's past, especially as a child. Disconnection from, from socializing, disconnection from values, disconnection from work, disconnection from hope, disconnection from nature, disconnection from relationships. He, 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 his key word was disconnection, and he felt that that was a root cause for depression. And I suppose the corollary of that is that if you can start achieving a reconnection, then you can uh, maybe ameliorate human suffering. And if we can turn it around its head and, turn, and talk about depression, one of the things that he's also written in Chasing the Scream, he's also said that his view is that the opposite of addiction is not actually abstinence, it's actually reconnection or connection with people. And certainly when we talk about recovery, we, I talk about a reconnection with, with, uh, with, with people's former lives before they descended into addiction. So reconnection is, is a very important view for me, as is also you know, purposeful, meaningful activity. How do you feel about uh, you know teaching your patients how to reconnect and engage in activities like that? Well, for me, it's not so much. Uh, I, I've moved perhaps from a fairly problem-based approach to helping people to move more of a solution-focused approach mm. and uh, helping patients to recognise that they actually have uh, quite incredible strengths, attributes, um, resources within themselves to make the desired change to achieve their desired future. Um, rather than me prescribing to them, uh, you have to take these steps or this must be your aim. Um, and uh, I, I find that, uh, well, first of all, for myself, as I work with my patients, I find it energizing because I, uh, it's much more of a coaching role. I, um, one of the texts um, uh, speaks of, this analogy of uh, playing a tennis match. And the, the standard counselling approach is that uh, I stand on one side of the, uh, the net and the patient on the other. I serve up my marvellous aces. Uh, and, of course, they're such wonderful shots that they have to just concede that I have all the wisdom. Um, but then the problem is in real life I serve up uh, what I think is an ace, it's an easy shot and they drive it straight back in my face. So that becomes quite exhausting. 
a better approach is to actually join them on their side of the net and, uh, and, and help them to make better shots uh, and help them to enjoy um, greater successes. And, uh, you know, it's just such simple things as uh, recognising that they've previously overcome things and they had a, an amazing ability in trying circumstances. Um, those kinds of things, picking out the exceptions in their story so they can see for themselves that they have this strength within. And then allowing them to choose their own path, uh, allowing them to, to imagine their better future, their hope. Uh, you know, that thing about hope is just so important. Um, with, without hope, people just remain very lost and they will just go back and uh, essentially anaesthetise themselves with whatever substance they can find. Or they will just collapse into the depths of despair. But if folks who have hope and that can see that the, that the future is not fixed, but rather it's negotiable, um, and uh, can can imagine, can dream. You know, that's another quote is uh, from South Pacific. Uh, if you don't have a dream, then how will you know that your dreams come true? Uh, and so, yeah, getting people to actually imagine. Uh, this this better future, then seeing that they have the assets within themselves to achieve it, um, and then just letting them move off. And uh, next time we see them, we'll talk about their successes, and and that often really works. The uh, another aspect, of course, in all of this is working with the plasticity of the human brain, so that. Well, part of this is, first of all, giving them a, that hope by uh, helping them to tell themselves about, in fact, they have these hidden treasures. And then another part of it is that when we're dealing with pain, realising that pain is a protector rather than being an accurate measure of tissue damage, and that if we can, by means such as simple movement, reassure the patient that in fact they can move and that it's not doing them any damage then that damps down their pain circuit it no longer tells them that they have to be protected and their pain fades quite rapidly the same is true of things like uh, depression and anxiety we're talking to people and helping them to realize that what they're going through is in fact normal expected it's the way it's supposed to work that it's not pathology that in fact they can um, take courage have hope and go out into the community go out into the world and engage in life which i think is an essential part of that that definition of of health is you know complete engagement in all of those wonderful facets of our lives so i'm hearing again reiterated this theme of reconnection so we you know you've spoken about reconnection with strength reconnection with hope reconnection with lives you know reconnection with community it's all about maintaining that connection and so so hope has got to be a function of how we connect or for that matter reconnect with all of the positive things in our lives and and, and i think i want to emphasize for those who might be watching this this is not wishy-washy mumbo-jumbo. 
this is a really powerful stuff. And you know, you and I both work in the healthcare industry, and I'm sure you'd be able to give us, you know, your personal stories of people who have made significant improvements in their health as a result of understanding the underlying importance of achieving this reconnection. Well, indeed. I mean, I, to protect patient confidentiality, I'll sort of anonymize and sure. perhaps give a, a, a typical picture of somebody yeah. that we might help. And can I say that it's not any great degree of genius on my part. I, I uh, have spoken to some of my colleagues, some senior colleagues, some ra really rather junior colleagues, and they've all reported a degree of success. Um, with some of these simple measures. Uh, but the, the kinds of things that are, might be an example, something that might be an example, um, a person who had lived with chronic pain for over 20 years uh, and had turned up religiously every, well, originally it was every three months, I think, and then it dropped down to a month. And then with uh, recent PBS changes, it drop down to every fortnight uh, to get their um, probably uh, hyperalgesic dose of, uh, of opiates uh, prescribed to them. And uh, Can you just explain what hyperalgesic doses mean? <laughs> well, uh, I, I think that these patients are often on well over 100 uh, milligram equivalents uh, of oral morphine daily. So we talk about the OMED uh, and uh, an OMED of uh, more than 100 is often associated with hyperalgesia, where the more opiate you take, the more pain you get. Um, and that's my very simple take. Um, and uh, so the, these people are often very mentally blunted. Uh, in the elderly, they're having falls, they're confused, they're incontinent. Um, and uh, they're really having quite low function. So my patient comes in, we have a discussion. Uh, I often use the rather excellent little animation of Tame the Beast uh, by Lorimer Mosley. Um, uh, I think it's Taming the Beast, isn't it, by Lorimer Mosley. And uh, uh, I, I get them to have a look at that, and then we talk about pain theory a little bit, um, we examine the question of doing a little bit of movement. Uh, sometimes under these circumstances, I'm able to uh, simply convince them that the movement is safe, this movement that they've forbidden themselves for decades. And uh, with that knowledge, they will often then just go on and use it and get themselves a bit fitter and stronger. And then we might look at tapering their opiates um, some people have actually successfully gone off really quite surprisingly high doses of opiates quite quickly, and they've come back to me several times since saying, I'm off all the opiates, I'm feeling so much better, I'm active. And it's often the case that they report that as soon as they cease their opiates, the pain just disappeared. So That's a really interesting message that you've got there, isn't it, that... that the painkillers that people have been using for numbers of years are actually now contributing to pain and getting off these same painkillers is actually part of the solution for improving pain. A lot of people would, would look in askance if you said that to them, but it's, you know, it, it's now become 
part of the canonical wisdom that uh, we now have developed, hasn't it? Well, indeed. Um, other things you know, that, that are so important in this are things like attachment to values, you know, kind of reconnection yeah. with values. Yeah. And, and we, we uh, touched briefly on that earlier. And mm -hmm. um, when people have values, for example, like family, and we reduce their opiates, they're no longer blunted, they find themselves able to communicate with their family and enjoy their family's company, then they see that as being much more important. And the discomforts uh, and the requirement for opiates seem to fade into the background and it just seems to dissolve. But again, as they find themselves improving with very simple measures, of course, their own hope grows. Um, I, I think really it's not that I'm giving a great deal of therapy. I'm just taking them gently by the hand and pointing them in a better direction. They find their own way out. Mm. So reconnecting with family, with life, with hope can occur when we reduce the dose of medication that we're taking for pain. So, for instance, when we do reduce the dose of opioids, that opens up possibilities that were otherwise closed to us. And I suppose it speaks to the, the toxicity that is associated with long-term opioid prescribing. I mean, they're, they're not safe drugs, are they? Well, certainly there's quite a level of overdose and subsequent death. But it's also not just that. It, it's this ongoing lack of function, loss of uh, connection that, that flows from it. Uh, it, whilst these people aren't clinically uh, suffering from a substance use disorder, they have many of the components of that in their lives. They, their conduct is wrapped around being able to get back to the doctor for the next prescription, making sure they don't run out of tablets and so on. And once they're freed up and they're doing multiple deadlifts every morning and uh, one of my patients came in and, and said to me, I, I went back and looked at that video again quite a few times, make sure I got your message right, doctor. Um, and I'm doing my exercises every day. I had lost five kilograms without even trying uh, and all of those sorts of things, you know, a, a much yeah. richer life. Yeah. So what we're hearing or what I'm hearing from you is that a reconnection especially to hope and uh, allows us to kind of move away from dependence on on pharmacological interventions and allows us to become much more self-actualized really and uh, it's it's a process that people should engage in without you know with with the, the ultimate destination being better function and more hope that's what I'm hearing is that is that is that right yeah I think so I, I... I think yeah. that my philosophy is one of active therapy. So yes. active therapy means the patient has control. For yeah. example, when we, when we plan out a plan for chronic diseases, I believe that we should be helping them to manage their own affairs and uh, to be active in that and uh, to move, uh, for mm. example, is just so important. Yeah, so I mean, one of my colleagues uh, is a great believer in kind of lifestyle medicine for the, in terms of managing pain. And he, sa he has a phrase, drug-free and free-range. That's how he wants his patients to be mm. when it comes to chronic pain. Because unfortunately, when we're talking about chronic pain, you know, if, if, it's, if we're defining it as, as pain that it continues beyond tissue healing, 
or for a duration of more than three months, we know that really the medications that we use don't really work. And, and you know, if we do start getting reliant on, on drugs such as opioids, really, A, they don't work, and B, you end up with higher and higher doses. And then, as you say, we end up in this realm of opioid-induced hyperalgesia, whereby, as I've said before, that's the same pain-killing drugs that were used originally to dampen the pain are, are now contributing to worsening pain. So we don't have good treat, good tablets for a lot of these chronic suffering conditions, but we do know that lifestyle interventions can unlock the key to relief from that suffering. And it's trying to communicate that to patients. That's, that's the trick, isn't it? It's, it's how do we actually sell that to our patients? It, it is a difficult one. Uh, the, the road is made a little bit more risky by the fact that pain occurs in the brain. And so patients uh, get attached on this idea that perhaps I think they're just making it up. Uh, and yes. I don't. I acknowledge that their pain is very real. It, it is absolutely real. Unfortunately, their brain and perhaps their spinal cord has learned pain. Um, yes. And so we we can help by getting them to unlearn pain. And I did mention yeah. also things like acceptance and commitment and mindfulness approaches and so on. And I've certainly found them to be also very beneficial in patients who are amenable to uh, those kinds of approaches. Yeah, and I think if we're if we're moving into the discussing the realm of CNC pain, or chronic non-cancer pain, and the pathophysiology, this concept that you know pain or pain and chronic pain is learnt, and chronic pain lives in the spinal cord and the brain rather than in the place where it hurts. I, I reflect on some of my earlier patient interactions where I've, where I've said, oh, look, you know, you've got this chronic pain and the seat of chronic pain and suffering is in the brain. And then this, this patient of mine said, what, you're telling me it's all in my head? And of course, that, that took the consultation in a direction that was not pleasant. Mm. But on a very simplistic level, it is important to understand that once tissue healing is completed, all suffering, all pain is in your head. Yes. And, you know, the idea that you can, you know, numb a nerve and therefore or, or have an operation and therefore get rid of the part of your body that hurts or at least numb the part of your body that hurts doesn't always, in fact, more often than not, doesn't achieve the desired result. And if we're, if we're talking about, you know, um, removing parts of the body that hurts, I mean, we're, we're also then opening the Pandora's box into, box into phantom limb pain, aren't we? So yeah. the idea that there's a there's a needle or an, or a knife that can actually cure people of their chronic pain, I don't doubt that some people have had benefit, but I do caution people into thinking that it's the panacea that they might otherwise consider it to be. Hmm. Yeah, um, and uh, that's very difficult. Uh, the, <laughs> kind, the kind of approach that I often take is to give examples. So phantom limb pain is one where you've yeah. got uh, no limb to have pain in. Another, occasion, uh, another good example is Ronald Reagan, who, when he was shot, commented that he played dying cowboys before and it was uh, agonising, but when he was shot in real life, it didn't hurt at all. And uh, <laughs> the famous story of the man who, getting a nail through his boot, screamed in pain, was taken to hospital by ambulance, and when they cut the boot off, they found it had passed between his toes and hadn't touched his tissue at all uh, in... Yeah. 
but the, those pain perceptions are real. They are. They are. Well, listen, we're, we are going to have to wrap things up because unfortunately, as, as per usual, we always run out of time. And I'm, I, I, I really do look forward to the opportunity of discussing these issues with you again in, in the next uh, show. But for the moment, Dr. Andrew Reese, thank you so much for sharing with us your wisdom. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong. Thank you for watching MedHeads. We'll see you next time. Thank you.